It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was good but be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A warning for listeners. This episode contains explicit language. Last episode, we established how warfare and technology go hand in hand. And we've now seen how regimes can use social media as increasingly one of the most powerful weapons in their toolkit. Social media has changed not just the message, but the dynamics of conflict. If what is online can swing the course of a battle or eliminate the need for battle entirely, what exactly could be considered war at all? But it's important that we acknowledge that these questions are not just limited to geopolitical disputes. Wherever young men gather and clash, social media now alters the dynamics, including sparking acts of violence. The result? A cycle of confrontation in which the distinction between online and offline worlds has become blurred. It happens in the battlefields of Syria. And it also happens in the streets of the U.S. I'm Peter Singer, and this is Like War. Part 3, The End of Forgetting. Uptown Chicago. Shaquan Thomas had grown up with a loving family and a talent for music. At the age of four, he started rapping, taught by his older brother Ryan. Shaquan's little brother, Tavian, always remembered Shaquan making music. 
my brother been rapping since he was a baby, like, and reading the dictionary, just learning new words and had a little rhyme dictionary, trying to learn what words rhyme with what. He'd been rapping before the internet, like. But the family lived in a neighborhood in Chicago that was caught between three street gangs. The conservative vice lords, the gangster disciples, and the black pea stones. Thomas's future would thus be shaped by the intersection of old geography and new technology. In the eighth grade, Thomas began slipping away into the streets. He started smoking marijuana, spending time with members of the gangster disciples gang, and getting locked up in juvenile detention for months at a time. And by that point, like so many young men, Shaquan Thomas also had an active second life that he lived online. Those close to him say that he became mesmerized by how social media sensationalizes not just music, but also crime and everything that goes with it. I'm Emerson Brooking, the co-author of Like War. This is something I've been studying for a while now. Gangs started migrating online in a big way by 2010 and 2011. By 2012, the superintendent of Chicago schools talked about at least half of schoolyard fights originating because of something that had been said online. And these schoolyard fights, of course, translated seamlessly into gang violence, especially growing up in schools that were prone to gang recruitment. Social media was already a battlefield some 10 years before most other people would realize it had become one. Chief Keef is part of a generation of Chicago rappers who redefine the Midwest sound with drill music, the trap subgenre known for its gritty beats and grim lyrics. But the Chief Keef era definitely affected the whole Chicago. I say that just that affected Chicago because everybody got more disrespectful. Like mm -hmm. after that, like you know what I'm saying. That's what I noticed after the Chief Keef era. Really. Before they got into rap, Keef's crew, the Three Hana started as a faction of the Black Disciples, or BDs, one of Chicago's main street gangs ever since the 1960s. In spring of 2012, a rapper named Lil Jojo, associated with the rival Gangster Disciples gang, tried to start a rap feud with Keith and the Three Hana by releasing a YouTube video for his song BDK, which stands for Black Disciple Killers. Hours after the video went up, Lil Jojo was killed in a drive-by while riding his bike in Inglewood. It's believed that JoJo's killers were able to triangulate his location by following his tweets. In recent years, cities around the nation have seen record-breaking rates of violence. Police leaders say the murders are often retaliation for insults made on social media. Shaquan Thomas coined a name for his online persona, Young Pappy. He started using it to build up that essential new currency of social media, his personal brand. Young Pappy started to cyber tag and cyber bang, an update of the old school gang practice of spray painting graffiti to mark territory or insult arrival. The cyber version is to promote your gang or to start a flame war by including another gang's name in a post or mentioning a street within a rival gang's territory. Social media opened up a new frontier where you didn't have to see someone face to face for gang members just like for terrorist organizations or now national militaries, using social media is about projecting strength and power, about showing that you're up to any task, about showing that you're essentially invincible and that your rivals would be better off not fighting you. 
Anyone who posts about a person or a street belonging to a rival gang is making an online show of disrespect. You didn't have to risk a direct confrontation in order to show disrespect, in order to take away that most valuable thing, face and reputation. But of course, any of these arguments that started online wouldn't necessarily stay there. In time, these online skirmishes moved to the bang, what was sometimes also called drilling. This is when a threat is made via social media. It might be as direct as one gang member posting to a rival's social media wall, I'm going to catch you, I'm going to shoot you. Or it might be symbolic, like posting photos of rival gang members, but turned upside down. Young Pappy did plenty of this. And he also started dropping his music in cadence with his online posts. Shout out to my the songs that he wrote and recorded under his Young Pappy brand would make their way out into the world through lurid videos posted on YouTube. He was known as a drill rapper. In street slang, drill means to fight or retaliate. Drill lyrics typically reflect life on the streets and tend to be gritty and violent. Drill rappers use a grim, deadpan delivery. Young Pappy's music was all that. And then, of course, his allegiance to his gang, Gangster Disciples, was front and center. Whatever strategic and creative choices that he was making, it seemed to work. His song, Killa, got a half million views. And Homicide pulled in over 400,000. He was a rapper and a gangster on the rise. Whether or not Shaquan Thomas actually took part in the gang glories that his young pappy persona rapped about, it was enough to grab the attention of both cops and his rivals on the street. And when it reached its peak on social media, bullets started whizzing by him in the real world. On two separate occasions, Thomas was shot at in broad daylight. Police say it began with an argument between two groups of young people and ended when a masked gunman ran up and opened fire. Witnesses say they heard about six or seven shots, and one of those shots hit Carr in the head. He died here on the scene. Now, a source tells WGN that at least two of the victims have documented street gang ties. Several innocent bystanders were killed, including a young man who was waiting at the same bus stop to go to his first day of a new job. In the second incident, a photographer who was following young Pappy instead caught the fatal stray bullets intended for the rapper. Thomas fled and survived. But a few days later, young Pappy took to social media to respond. I'm back, he posted. And then he did the only logical thing that a drill rapper could do after two near-death incidents. He dropped another video on YouTube. You don't even know how to shoot. He taunted those who were after him. When we, we talk about gang violence, reputation is so important. Because if you can command respect, you're more likely to get what you want. If you are disrespected, and especially if you allow that disrespect to stand, then you have much less power. You become more susceptible to defection, to attack, 
to acts of violence. And so the concept of saving face is fundamental to how a gang can survive because your response would help win and maintain your own respect. Shooters was a hit, receiving over 2 million views. Young Pappy was now a star, both in social media and in gangland. Weeks later, at Young Pappy's mixtape release party, police raided the celebration. By this point, they were convinced that his music and social media posts were fueling more and more violence. Days after the party and the police raid, Thomas was out late. Standing on North Kenmore Avenue, he was just one block away from where he had recorded the shooter's video. Witnesses who were out that Friday morning say a shiny black four-door car drove past. After passing the spot where Thomas was standing, the driver hit the brakes and reversed. Two bullets had gone into Thomas's back. He was taken to Illinois Masonic Medical Center, where he was pronounced dead at 2.04 a.m. on Friday, May 29th, 2015. He's killed one week after posting a video online in which he makes fun of a rival gang. WGN's Patrick Elwoods at Area North Police Headquarters joins us live with more on the murder of a rapper known as Young Pappy. Thomas Patrick. had just turned 20 years old a few hey, weeks Tom, before. As you mentioned, he was a young rapper, local rapper, who glorified gun violence and gang life, and now he's dead. As you're about to hear the social outpouring of grief for Thomas followed a well-tread path. Shaquan's brother, Ryan, did the only thing that seemed appropriate. He took to YouTube with a new song. And of course, the lyrics included an accusation about which rival gang had murdered his brother. But there weren't just posts of grief or celebration of young Pappy's life. There were also disparaging posts from rival gangs the equivalent of cyber stomping on young Pappy's grave. Clifton Fry made one of those disrespectful posts. Four days later, a 17-year-old who was a sophomore in high school and a member of a faction of the Gangster Disciples shot Clifton Fry over his Facebook comments about young Pappy. The old adage, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you, was no longer true. Words posted online had caused people to die. For gang members, something that was said online mattered just as much as something that happened in the real world. And there had to be the same level of aggressive retaliation. And because of the way my generation has grown up, certainly the way that a Generation Z has grown up, this online clout really does matter to people as much as their own lives. And we see it manifest almost every day in gun violence across the United States. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene! 
Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those who know the history of crime and rap will recognize echoes in Shaquan Thomas's story to what had also inspired famed 20th century figures like Eazy-E or Ice Cube. Countless rappers before have taken to music to describe street life and build up their persona along the way. Young Pappy was just doing what many others have done before him. What's different now is the combination with the massive social networks that young men like Shaquan have at their fingertips and the ramifications of that reach. Police who have witnessed firsthand the effects call it technological kerosene and how it makes already smoldering gang feuds leap into four alarm flames. It's not the rap or the drugs or the turf. At the center of the strife is social media. The very first time YouTube had to take down a violent video, it wasn't from Al-Qaeda or another terrorist organization. It was from a Mexican cartel who had cut together a music video of their own recorded executions which they were using as a recruiting tool. This was all the way back in 2007. I've always felt that if you want to look to the future of how political violence intersects with social media, you should look to what the gangs are doing. Because gangs are occupied by young people, young people who are interested in building and maintaining these online reputations, in using social media platforms to win clout at the expense of everything else. Gang members were early to social media. They were early to, more recently, Snapchat, and now TikTok. And I think for people who follow uh, these criminal patterns in the United States, 
if you see where gang violence migrates next, you'll have a good sense of where terrorists and participants in civil wars will come a few years later. Back in the Middle East, the virality of the internet that Shaquan Thomas relished in would become a hindrance to real military operations. For those who'd rather not be seen or heard, there are few places to hide on the internet. Uh, so in, in a very real way, almost nowhere on earth can you be unobserved. Uh, and that's a so huge for, change. That's, a, that's yeah. the first time really in human history. Every day, billions of people around the world willingly carry internet-enabled devices that they know and accept will keep track of everywhere they go and everything they search. What we have created is what humans have feared for centuries. The ancient Greeks imagined it as Argus Panoptes, a mythological giant with 100 eyes. A future where freedom becomes slavery. Where privacy is forbidden, the past forgotten, and where living people simply vanish. The cameras, GPS systems, and social media updates that we consider to be a necessary part of everyday life consistently make the possibility of an ever-present watcher less of a nightmare and more of a reality. In 2009, there was nothing but optimism in Silicon Valley. Device manufacturers were thriving as they found new ways to connect smartphones to wearable technology. Fitbit is a device and a website, and um, it constantly senses your body's motion and tells you things like, you know, how intense or how long have I been active? And all of this data is collected on the device. That's great, so people just attach it to their clothes? Yeah, you, you can um, just wear it loosely in your pocket. Uh, when you're sleeping, you, you, we, we provide a wristband and you clip it to your wristband. A wristwatch that tracked your steps, linked with the network power of smartphone software? It turned a simple step counter into a treasure trove of not just fitness insight, but data with countless applications. Wear fitness your way with Fitbit Alta, a slim fitness wristband that automatically tracks everything from sleep to running out the door, and yet it might be the best purchase for the everyday person. Most people out there looking to buy a smartwatch, this might be the one to buy in 2020. Fitbit has officially announced its newest fitness tracker, Fitbit Charge 5. This is the latest update to their advanced tracker line, and it will replace the now discontinued Fitbit Charge 4. Articles began popularizing the term the quantified self, outlining a future where man and technology are ever more linked. Insurance companies even began offering them as perks to reduce premiums. This new blend of software and hardware had created a new way to turn our actions into insights. But what many didn't know was just how far and wide these actions were beaming out into the world. An Australian college student was at his computer one evening. His name was Nathan Rouser. He was a student of international security in the Middle East at Australia National University. And on his screen was an app called Strava, a GPS tracking company. In 2017, Strava unveiled an exciting new feature, the Strava Global Heat Map. It had started using satellite information to map the locations and movements of subscribers to the company's fitness service, a live look at the world of exercising in real time. 
any user could pop onto their site and scan the globe to see thousands upon thousands of light trails of other exercising individuals anywhere in the world. Nathan had found out about the heat map's existence from a blog and was inspired to look more closely. He was curious after a throwaway comment by his father, who had observed that the map offered a snapshot of, quote, where rich white people are. Strava published a map showing tracking data for 27 million users of its app. Whether you use the Strava app or a Fitbit or other smart fitness device. Unsurprisingly, there's a lot of Westerners who use this app. The more the activity, the brighter the light. Scanning the world map of exercisers, Nathan saw a lot of things you'd expect to see. A flurry of activity in major metropolitan areas, dozens of trails cutting through world tourist sites and nature reserves. But then he saw something that didn't make sense. Illuminated trails appearing in the middle of nowhere in the Middle East, outside of major cities, outside of major roadways, even outside places where there should be connections to the internet. What appeared on his screen were dozens of little light beams outlining the perimeter of what looked to be a small office complex. At first glance, you might think it was a mistake, but then it clicked. This wasn't an error. This was a secret U.S. government facility, a military complex. And just beside it was a CIA black site. Some of the most classified locations in the world revealed through an exercise app. Strava lets its users sync their wearables and upload their exercise data, creating heat maps like this one. Only a 20-year-old student noticed that data uploaded by military users are lighting up U.S. bases on the maps as well. So I asked Nathan Ruser, how did these maps catch his attention? One of the U.S.'s partner forces in Syria, the Kurdish, the Syrian Democratic Forces, have controlled a large bit of territory in the northern part of Syria. And along that, there's one major highway that connects the western part of their territory to the eastern part of their territory. Along that highway, there's four or five U.S. bases that have been built in the last few years, and each one of those bases lit up very brightly. There's many members of the U.S. military who are obsessed with fitness apps. Indeed, the Pentagon ran a program where it used to give service members Fitbits so they could record their steps and progress. What Strava likely didn't intend when they released their map was that U.S. military bases around the world lit up like Christmas lights. You could find uh, bases in Iraq and Syria, in Mogadishu, Somalia. Someone found a Patriot missile battery in Yemen. Someone else identified a special forces base in the Sahel region of Africa. And you didn't have to stop there. If you looked at this step data, you could match it up with higher quality geoimaging services. And you could begin to not only know where the bases were, but you could see what parts of the military base were more actively patrolled, more actively occupied and monitored. If you were an adversary looking at this information, you could begin to get a sense of potential points of ingress and egress to consider where maybe there weren't patrols or where the foot traffic was much less. This is certainly not what Strava intended, but without meaning to, a fitness company provided 
one of the best glimpses to date into the full extent of the American War on Terror and the number of countries in which we had these unlisted and previously undisclosed bases. But I think to me, one of the ones that stood out the most is possibly the identification of CIA sites. For example, there's a lot of activity around a building which has been rumored to be the CIA site in Somalia. Soon after, Rouser started tweeting about his discovery and the internet lit up with activity as data analysts, military experts, and amateur sleuths began scouring the map for evidence of activity in their areas of interest. It wasn't long before Strava's app became a moth-like light for analysts and civilians alike, looking for once-secret facilities, bases, supply routes. It was a military planner's nightmare. Well, it's an incredible find, and it's an incredibly sensitive find as well. And, you know, before you decided to go ahead and share it with the world, did you hesitate a bit? I did, I did. I posted it. I posted it and then after a minute or so took it down for a few minutes trying to work out if that's the best course of action. This was a new phenomena, the ubiquity of so-called open source intelligence, or OSINT. In the previous decades, open source intelligence was a small sliver of the information available. Details like housing records, international flight patterns, or census data small pieces of information available to anyone willing to dive into the public records and find patterns they could utilize. But it was time intensive and largely garnered only basic information. The real power lay in the top secret spaces, the worlds of HumeInt and SIGINT, short for the human intelligence of spies and the signals intelligence of communication intercepts. So what the open source revolution means is that the line between classified and unclassified has become hopelessly blurred. But as the adoption of social media and smart devices grew, suddenly the balance shifted dramatically. Some of the most valuable information was now out in the open, available for anyone with an internet connection and a social media account. Those private Facebook messages you sent where you shared intimate details about your life with your old friend? Well, Facebook let people from Netflix have access to them. Back. He is the co-founder of Facebook, and now he's calling for the social media giant to be broken up. There was a moment, I think it was sometime around 2011, when a switch kind of flipped, where open source intelligence analysis stopped being the domain of governments and started being the domain of anyone with an internet connection and a basic interest in geolocation. They could figure out where a particular battle had taken place, different sides that were involved, the weapons that had been used. If they had a good image of those weapons, they could figure out where the weapons had been purchased. What this means is that virtually any violent confrontation today produces a stream of images and videos. And this evidence can be looked at and examined by anyone who can glean new insights, who can feed their observations back into a global conversation. And this process happens so quickly, and you can rest assured that no matter how secret your mission, other people are going to find out about it, often very, very quickly. Dominance in the world and on the battlefield 
for centuries stemmed from a country's ability to control the information, to keep its secret secret, and to monitor its foes with tools no one else possessed. But every minute, technology is undoing the massive advantage of these larger powers by making information publicly available and cheaper than ever to exploit. It may be a smart watch today, but what will be the next unforeseen compromiser of secrets? How effective is a squadron of Black Hawk helicopters if the enemy is able to pinpoint when and where they can't and can't fly? How helpful are elite special forces units embedded around the world when a single camera phone can expose their presence? Now, emerging states, resource-strapped militias, even a 20-year-old student browsing the web has the ability to undermine billions of dollars spent to maintain supremacy in the information space. And now the information space is also being undermined in other unexpected ways. A new generation of weapons has risen out of our use of smartphones and social media. And those weapons are already at play in major political and even societal battles. That's next on Like War, how memes have become dangerous tools of influence. This is a production of iHeart Podcasts, Graphic Audio, and Goat Rodeo. Kara Schillen, that's me, is the series lead producer. Special thanks to Vice Media and Noisy. You can find out more about their coverage of the drill rap scene in Chicago in their eight-part documentary series, Chirac, linked in our show notes. This episode is just one of a seven-part series. Find other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to dive deeper into the work of P.W. Singer and Emerson Brooking, you can access the full audiobook, Like War, on which this series is based, wherever you get your audiobooks. Writing and editing from Kara Schillen. Production assistance from Isabel Kirby McGowan. Senior producers are Ian Enright and Megan Nadolsky. Please share this series with the hashtag LikeWar to find other conversations about the series. Thank you for listening. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. 
because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.